It's good to see everybody tonight. It's a wonderful blessing to be here, as Brother Justin said, to study God's Word and enjoy this time together and uh, focusing our minds attentively on our God and thinking about the blessings that He's given us. And uh, I know sometimes we may take it for granted because we're so accustomed to this, but it truly is a great blessing for us to be here together. I've entitled our lesson, Opening the Door to All Nations, because that's been something that we've been moving toward in the book of Acts, and we've been talking about from even our Sunday series, uh, is this idea that the gospel would be preached to all nations. And tonight, we're seeing that come to fruition, not in the respect that every single nation under earth uh, is being preached to, but rather this is the moment wherein the gospel uh, was spread outside of the house of Israel. And so we're going to dive right in because we've got a lot to cover. I had to figure out what lane I wanted to stay in. We're going to use a few different scriptures to help us tonight, but there's a lot of things we could talk about in this chapter because uh, it's very deep and it's also very important. Acts chapter 10 verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian regiment. Let's talk about Caesarea for a moment. We've been trying to let everybody kind of get a, a view of geography as we're looking at, at the land of Israel. And uh, I'm using a different map than what we usually use just for a reason. And it's because one of the few that was clear enough that had the word Joppa in it rather than Jaffa. One of the reasons why it's Jaffa on the modern maps is because that's what the city's known as today is Jaffa. But here you see Joppa over here on the coast. And I just want you to see that in, uh, in perspective against Jerusalem, Jericho, up here being Galilee. And this in the area of Samaria. So Joppa and Caesarea are both coastal cities. And those are the two cities we're going to primarily deal with tonight. Peter is in Joppa when he's called to come to Caesarea. And this is about 34 miles from Joppa to Caesarea. Now in a car that's a very quick trip. On land that's not so quick. But it is a little bit faster for them to travel on the coast as it's flatter and they don't have to go through a lot of terrain. And so we see them actually making a pretty quick trip. Uh, as far as these men who come down from Caesarea to Joppa and then from Joppa to Caesarea in the period of four days. So we're going to jump ahead just a moment in our chapter and pick that up just so that we understand what we're talking about. L later on in the chapter in verse 30, Cornelius said four days ago about this hour. So it was a period of four days from the time that, that Cornelius was spoken to by the angel and he sent these three men down to Joppa and those men come back. So four-day period for them to travel 34 miles one way and then back. And we'll, we'll go through that a little bit more as we go through the chapters. We see other details added. But I want to give you an idea about how far away this was because it's about, it's about like being from the, the uh, eastern side of Pampa to the western side of Borger. So think about walking that distance without all the hills and everything else that you have to walk through to get to Borger. Uh, so that's about the distance from Caesarea. Uh, Caesarea was a thriving town. It was a thriving city, you might say, being a coastal city. Uh, and then we're going to see things about Cornelius that are going to lead us to that, to draw that conclusion as well. So I just want to start up by asking, why is Cornelius' story so important? You may say, well, what do you mean? Well, thousands upon thousands of conversions occurred during the first century, yet only a few are recorded in Acts. Just a few. And there's a reason for that, because these conversions are monumental in what they teach. And so... 
we need to understand every one of these conversions we're reading about in Acts. The Holy Spirit has inspired Luke to write those things for our learning and for a purpose to teach us certain things. And so obviously this story is extremely important to us in our learning about the church, about salvation, and about many other things. So again, there's a lot of different areas we could talk about when we're discussing this. I'm going to leave some of that open for next week. So going back to our original text, there was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment. Let's talk about this first. So Cornelius is a centurion, and that, the, the root word of that word centurion is where we get our word century, a hundred years. So centurion is a captain over a hundred. That's a man of high authority in, in the Roman army. He's over a hundred people. So there's a hundred people that, that obey him, that are subject to his authority. And he said, it also says that he was in what is called the Italian regiment, or as the King James puts it, the Italian band. Now, a regiment was anywhere from 400 to 600 soldiers. Well, 400 to 600 soldiers, there may have been more than that in Caesarea, but having the presence of four to 600 soldiers is a pretty big presence. And that was very common for Roman. Remember, Rome is ruling the world. They're, they're the, em, the world empire at this time, and they would have soldiers in each one of these cities. Now, why does he specifically tell us, tell us that he's from the Italian regiment? I mean, that seems like a seemingly you know, needless detail. However, uh, that tells us something about Cornelius. His name, in fact, Cornelius is a Latin name, which tells us most likely he is a Roman. Uh, and being part of the Italian regiment, there were lots of regiments. In fact, a lot of times Rome would, uh, they would recruit soldiers from other provinces. They weren't all from Italy. And I, I believe what they're telling us here is this Italian regiment were people from Italy, from Rome, from that area. And usually the ones that were actually from Rome, they had the preeminence over those that were recruited from other provinces because of their Roman heritage. And the reason I'm telling you all this is because a lot of times power and authority corrupt men. But we don't see that with Cornelius. You know, even when we see John talking to the, the soldiers, the, the Roman soldiers that are asking him questions, John the Baptist, I mean, during his ministry, what should we do? He says, don't take any more money than what's owed you. <laughs> Why? Because men corrupt their power, right? Well, what we read about Cornelius is quite the opposite. Cornelius is said to be a devout man, one who feared God with his, all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. I want to come back to that. We're going to really focus on those details in just a moment. But I also want to take you over to Acts chapter 11 just for a moment. I don't want to dive too much in Acts 11, but there's some details that I want us to pick out from there. And one of those details is this. We get this description of what type of person that Cornelius was. And I'll tell you, that's an anomaly for a Roman soldier to have the kind of character that Luke describes. And and he's not a proselyte, okay? He's not a circumcised proselyte. He's not a Jewish convert. Notice in verse 1 of Acts 11. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? He is a Gentile to the fullest, okay? He's not a Jew, and I think that makes it even more impactful when we read these details about this man's character. Number one, he's a devout man. Now that word that's translated devout is the word Eusebius. And that is the root word of Eusebia. You say, well, that doesn't mean nothing to me. Eusebia is the word you see translated all throughout the New Testament when you see the word godliness. So add to your patience 
godliness. That's the word eusebia. You read the word uh, exercise yourself rather unto godliness. That's eusebia. This is the root word of that. What's the point? He's a godly man. A godly Roman soldier. A devout man. He fears God. Not the gods of Rome, but God. Theos, God, with all his household. That added detail Luke puts in there. Not only is he a believer, his family are believers in Jehovah God. Number three, he's charitable in his deeds. He gives much alms to the people and he prays to God always. I don't know about you, but I read this and I go, that's, that's who I want to be. <laughs> I want to be like Cornelius. I mean, I think we would want our children to be like Cornelius. We want them to be devout and fear God and be giving and loving and generous and to be prayerful people. And that's the kind of person he was. But with all of those good things that Cornelius had, I'll tell you what else he was. Not saved. Not saved. And that tells us something about Cornelius. That's a valuable lesson that we learn from the story of Cornelius because we're not given these type of details about every single person that's converted in the book of Acts, but we are about Cornelius. And that tells us something. Despite what a good, righteous, godly, God-fearing, giving, prayerful man he was, he was not saved. You say, well, how do you know that? Acts 11, 13. He told us how he had seen an angel. This is Peter recalling what happened between him and Cornelius. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Why does it say will be saved? Because he was not saved. That's why. He needed to be saved. You know why? Because he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus. Now I'll tell you this, he does know about Jesus already. And we're going to pick up that detail in this chapter. He heard about Jesus. He knows about Jesus. knows some things about Jesus. But he doesn't know Jesus. He needs the gospel message. He needs exactly what Peter talks about here, which is words whereby him and all of his household will be saved. Does that jump off the page at you? Does it? I'll tell you, it did to me. Who shall tell you words whereby you will be saved? He needed words to be saved. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's who Cornelius is. He's a Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, The just shall live by faith. As righteous as he may be in comparison to other people, with all the good deeds he's doing. Cornelius needs to be justified. He needs to be sanctified. He needs to be reconciled to his God through the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he needs. And that's what this chapter is about. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. You know, I find this amazing. Here's this Roman. He's not a Jew. He's not of the stock of Israel. An angel comes to him and here's what he says. Cornelius, God hears you and God sees you. Whew, that's pretty good stuff right there. <laughs> God sees what you do. He sees the good things you're doing and God hears your prayers. You know, a lot of people read this and they think that this is contradicts other passages in scripture 
You say, how would this contradict other passages in Scripture? Well, for one, it's because of the way we take certain passages of Scripture like John 9, 31. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, He hears Him. So we say, well, Cornelius was not saved, and yet God sees him, and He hears him. That's right. God sees him, and He hears him. But this man says He doesn't hear sinners. Well, what does He mean by sinner? Is, is this blind man in John 9, 31 that's really defending Jesus? Is he saying to them, look, if somebody hasn't yet obeyed the gospel of Christ, then they're not made righteous by God and therefore God doesn't hear their prayer. That's not what he's saying. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, number one, there is no gospel of Christ at this point. There is no great commission. There is no obeying the gospel. None of those things exist. The context of this is he's saying, if Jesus were an evil work, work evil working devil worshiper like you're accusing him of there's no way God would be performing miracles through him that's his logic the word sinner here doesn't mean someone who's seeking God but hasn't yet known and obeyed the gospel that's not what he's saying and then we read this in first Peter chapter 3 verse 12 for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil now notice the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers what did he tell Cornelius God sees you and God hears you but he's not righteous right look Cornelius is not righteous in the perspective of been made righteous by the blood of Jesus but he's also not someone who is practicing evil. And that's what 1 Peter 3 is pointing at. People who do evil things, God is not in their corner. He's not for them. His ears are not open to their prayers. His face is against them. It doesn't mean he don't see them. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good and the evil. It's not that he doesn't see them. It's that he's not on their side and he's not in their favor. That's not the kind of person Cornelius was. It doesn't contradict when it says, I see you and I hear your prayers. It doesn't contradict these scriptures. Because what we're talking about is people who are working evil. He said, well, Ian, are you telling me you're of the opinion that God hears the prayer of people who don't obey the gospel, who haven't obeyed the gospel? I'm not telling you my opinion. I'm telling you what happened. I'm telling you what happened. Cornelius had not obeyed the gospel, but God heard his prayer. Not only heard it, answered it. Now... Someone says, well, that opens the door up then. It opens the door up. Because doesn't that mean then that God might hear the sinner's prayer? No, it doesn't mean that. And those things are not even connected. And I'll tell you why. Paul prays for three days. But what happened? He wasn't saved. What did he need? The gospel. What else did he need to do? Obey the gospel. Why? So he could be saved. Cornelius needs words whereby he will be saved. And as we look at Peter's words whereby Cornelius will be saved, I'll tell you what is not included. Not one time do you see Peter saying, ask Jesus into your heart. Not one time do you hear Peter saying, say the sinner's prayer. And not only is it not in Peter's message to Cornelius, it's not in anyone's message anywhere in the Bible. That's never prescribed, it's never commanded, it's never taught. It's not that these verses somehow mean that, oh, well, the sinner's prayer is okay. No, let's just not use these verses to teach something the Bible doesn't teach. The Bible teaches that Cornelius' prayer was heard. So what was it that God did in answering Cornelius' prayer? That's the most important question. You know what he did? He sent a gospel preacher. That's what he did. Cornelius was praying. He was working righteousness. He was doing things that were good in the sight of God. He was trying to fear God. He was following God. He was devout to God. And so you know what God did? He made sure he was in touch with someone so he could hear and believe and obey the gospel. Just like Brother Justin talked to us about from Romans 10 last week.
How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And he said, Isaiah said, they've not all obeyed the gospel because they have not all believed. They haven't heard and believed. See, it wasn't his goodness, it wasn't his prayer that saved him. But I'll tell you what it did do. It got the attention of God. And that's amazing. Cornelius got the attention of God. Verse 5, now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, different Simons there. A tanner, that's his job description, not his last name, whose house is by the sea, he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to him, he sent them to Joppa. So we're going to be quick with some of this narrative because I don't think it needs a lot of explanation. But essentially, here's what happens. God tells Cornelius, I've seen you, I've heard you, I want you to go and I want you to send people down and I want you to find this guy named Peter, Simon Peter. He's going to come up and he's going to tell you what I want you to do. And so the angel speaks to him, Cornelius takes three people and he sends them down toward Joppa, this 35-mile trip to the south-southwest. The next day, as they went on their journey and, and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Now I've got this blacked out down here. Uh, and we're going to look at those verses in just a moment, 11 and 12. But first I want to deal with this, because this, this is a little odd. It says that Peter was on top of the house praying. They had flat houses, don't worry about that. They didn't have pitched roofs like we do. They, that was a place where they uh, actually hung out a lot, if you want to say it that way. People went up there to pray, and so it's noon, and Peter's out there praying. And he's hungry, why? Because it's noon, and people are fixing food. And while they're fixing food, it says he fell into a trance. You say, what, what is that? <laughs> He fell into a trance. Well, this isn't the only time we see this happen. In Acts chapter 22, as Paul is recalling uh, his being at Damascus, it says, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in a temple, that I was in a trance. And saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for thou wilt receive your testimony concerning me. And there's a lot of other things that the Lord said to him there. But I want you to notice that Paul was in a trance, just like Peter was in a trance. And that word trance is Greek word 1611, and it means a displacement of the mind. A displacement of the mind, like your mind is somewhere else. You say, it almost sounds like an out-of-body experience. Well, you know, maybe so. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a woman is caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, for he, caught up, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful. For a man to utter. Now, a lot of people feel like Paul is talking about himself in the third person. I would agree with that, but let's not get all stuck on that and miss what he's saying. He's saying this man was caught up into the third heaven and received a vision and revelations, and he said, I don't know if that really happened or if it was basically a trance, a vision, a out of body experience is kind of how he. Now, don't think of that in the mystical, but this is very common for prophecy. It's very possible that as Peter's up there and he's praying that his eyes are closed. It's not, he may not have his eyes open. It, what doesn't matter is, is, is all the logistics of it rather than to say this. What he's seeing here is a vision. It's not literal. He's not literally seeing about 
all the things that we're going to look at. That's going to be important. He's not literally seeing it. He's seeing a vision of those things that are given to him by God. So let's talk about the trance and about the vision. He fell into a trance and it says, And saw heaven open, and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. A little odd, right? A little odd. So you've probably all seen the, the image of the stork carrying the baby where it's all tied up. I think that's what it's indicating here. The four corners are tied up. They're bound, and it's being let down out of heaven. Now, it doesn't say it's a sheet, right? It doesn't say it's a sheet. It says, like a great sheet. And it says, bound at the four corners, descending to him out of what? Out of heaven. Well, let's think about this. I saw heaven open. What does that mean? I don't know. He's just describing what he saw. I mean, it's almost as like he's describing that the sky is made of solid matter and it's either peeled apart or pulled apart and then there's this big opening and he sees heaven through the sky. Someone says, well, that's not scientific. Well, of course it's not scientific. It's a vision. It's a vision. It's, it's a rendering of something. What, what, what are we supposed to get out of this? There's something coming out of heaven to the earth. It's from God, right? God is communicating to him something. Well, what in the world is he trying to communicate with all this? And again, we, we see this same language used that he saw the heavens open in the conversion of Jesus. I say conversion of Jesus. I should say baptism of Jesus, not conversion of Jesus. But when Jesus is baptized in John 3, 16, John beheld the heavens opened and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove and heard the voice of God. Very similar language. Um, we see the same similar language in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen as he's dying. He sees the heavens open and the glory of God. I just want you to know that's not an unfamiliar phrase. So, uh, but that's what he sees. He's in a trance. Heaven opens. This uh, sheet or sheet-like thing that's bound at the four corners comes down and he sees these creatures. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Well, he is hungry, right? Not exactly what God has in mind. There, he's not feeding Peter here. There's a message for Peter. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you shall not call common. This was done three, th three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, this tells us that the beasts that were inside of this sheet-like thing that are let, that's let down at the four corners were unclean. And so when God says, rise, kill, and eat, Peter's first thought, his reaction is, no, I'm not eating that stuff. I've never eaten that, and I'm not going to eat that. And God says, don't call it unclean. I've cleansed it. I've cleansed it. And then it was done three times. Now, why was it done three times? I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about that. That doesn't necessarily matter. What we do know is it was done three times. And it was meant to represent something and to teach Peter something. And I will tell you, at this point, Peter doesn't understand how do you know that? Well, the next verse tells us that. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Capernaum, uh, from Capernaum, from Cornelius, had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And so just to go through this quickly, Peter is thinking about what this vision must mean. And, the, and, and then all of a sudden the Lord says, hey, they're here. They're here. 
There's, there's men here. I want you to go with them. In fact, I want you to go with them, and I don't want you to doubt anything. That word doubting means don't hesitate. Don't second-guess this. I just, just go. Just go with them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? Peter doesn't know why they're there. He doesn't know. He says, Hey, I'm Peter. <laughs> I'm the guy you look for. What, what do you want? What do you need? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed, that is, he was instructed by God, by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So Peter says, hey, I'm your guy. <laughs> I'm who you're looking for. What do you need? And they, they tell him. What do they tell him? Essentially the same description that Luke gives us of Cornelius. He's a just man. That word just means equitable, fair. Sometimes it's rendered innocent or holy. He's a good man. Cornelius is a good man. He fears God. He has a good reputation. Now why are they telling him all this? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he doesn't, they don't think you'll go up there. <laughs> they don't have all these details. But I will say this. He obviously is going, okay. He takes them in. God's told him, go with them without hesitation. Well, then they stayed the night. He's saying, don't second guess it. Don't overthink it. I want you to go with them. I want you to go with them. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. So there, there's two different days here. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Then the next verse says, on the following day. So they leave. And again, it's a day and a half journey back up there to Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Now this is somewhat of an aside, but this is every preacher's dream. Every preacher's dream. You're going up to do a Bible study with this guy to talk to him about the Lord and what has he done. He's got all of his relatives and all of his close friends at the house waiting for you. You know why? Because that's the type of man he is. He's not self-centered. He's thinking about, if, well, if, if a message is coming from God, I'm getting everybody I love and I'm bringing them too. And so when Peter gets there, that's exactly who is there. Cornelius, his relatives... And his close friends. And I don't know how many people were there. It says, as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. Cornelius, he don't get it yet. He don't really know who Peter is. Not really. But that was his reaction. God's told him to call for this man. This man comes, and what's he do? He falls down at his feet, and Peter says, get up. And I'll tell you, this dispels any idea that Peter was a pope worthy of worship. He said, stand up. I'm just a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. So that's how many were there. Many. <laughs> many had come together in the house of Cornelius. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them for what reason you sent for me. So this is really interesting. Now, Peter, when he had the vision, he was trying to figure out what it meant. He was thinking within himself, and then he gets interrupted by, by God telling him to go with the men. Peter gets it now, doesn't he? It, he saw beasts. He saw unclean beasts. Now, what's he seeing now? God was showing me that I should call no man common or unclean. He says, you know it's unlawful for me to even be here, right? But God's shown me that that's no longer the case. And so I came here without any objection as soon as I was sent for. Now, tell me why I'm here. 
So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. This is another preacher's dream. Not only have I gathered all my friends and relatives here, we are here waiting for you to tell us whatever God commanded us, and we'll do it. That's amazing. We're waiting for you to give us instruction. Tell us what God's commanded. And I'm going to tell you, Peter's going to tell them what God has commanded them. And we're going to get there in just a few verses. So then Peter opens his mouth and says, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Peter has seen two evidences to help him understand that God is not partial. Firstly was the vision from God, and we'll talk about that in more detail in just a moment. First was the vision. Secondly was the fact that God spoke to a Gentile. And now he says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Now listen to his words, but in every nation. What's he mean by that? He means not just the nation of Israel. All the way until Acts 10, you know who they've been interacting with? You know who they've been preaching to? Israelites, the Jews. And Peter says, I see that that's no longer the case. That in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, don't get confused thinking what he's saying is when someone works righteousness, that's enough to save them. When he says accepted by him, he's talking about how God is now looking toward them to be part of the kingdom. Works righteousness. He's just talking about the way he's seeking God, the way he's living. It didn't save him. But again, it got God's attention. Peter is just now learning the truth of what we've been studying in the Great Commission. I want you to really let that sink in. Now, it's been estimated that there's been a 10-year period from Pentecost to Acts 10. Now, I don't know that. I can't confer that. The Scriptures don't say that. But that's been the estimate, 10 years. Jesus gave the Great Commission years before this interaction with Cornelius and the whole time, the apostles have been out preaching the gospel, but they didn't get this until Peter's vision. Now he says, I perceive, I perceive in truth that the doors open to all nations. Well, that was the original commission. Now, it started there. And I want to go over to Ephesians chapter 2, 11 for a moment, because what Peter is learning is the truth of what Paul teaches in many of his letters, and that is that there used to be a difference between Jew and Gentile that was very recognizable, and it kept them separated, not only from one another, but it kept the Gentiles separated from God. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. That is very wordy, so let's simplify that. What he's saying is at one time, time the Jews who were circumcised called you or labeled you the uncircumcision in a derogative way and they did that for a reason because at that time he says you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope without God in the world really let that sink in before the Gentile world before the door to the kingdom was open to the Gentiles they did not have the same understanding of God that the Jews did that's why Paul says to the Jew was every advantage because unto them were committed the oracles of God. Because these people don't know the promises. They don't know the promise God made to Abraham or made to David or made to Solomon or, or made to Adam and Eve for that, in, for that matter. 
They know none of that. They're just strangers. They're aliens. They have no hope. But now, verse 13, that was then. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both, that's both Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition with the dividing wall between the Jew and Gentile, having abolished in his flesh, that Jesus abolished in his flesh, the enmity that is the separating wall. And he said, now, now he identifies what that wall is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, the law of Moses. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile. Now I'm being redundant here, but I want you to understand this. To God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. The only way for Jew and Gentile to come together in one body is to remove the wall of partition, the law of Moses. So let's think about Peter's dream for a moment. We recognize this, right? We, we recognize that at the death of Jesus, that the authority of the law of Moses was no longer. We, we read that in the book of Hebrews. We see it as well in the book of Romans. But, but what I want you to think about is this. Peter's vision is the first time that God saw fit to communicate that to man. They didn't know that yet. In fact, they didn't know it, really, because that's when he began to, uh, to communicate it, but they didn't know it until Acts 15 when they actually had a problem in the church where people were saying, you need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And you know what Peter didn't do? He didn't come in and say, hey, look, guys, I saw a vision, and I already understand all this. You know what they did? They had a council, and they all discussed it, and then they went back and they said, no, that, that's, that's not what needs to happen. They, they don't need to be circumcised, and they don't need to keep the law of Moses. But they didn't know that. They didn't understand that yet. It was being revealed to them. And Peter's vision, it, it teaches us that. It teaches us that the law of Moses was changing. And, and, and you might say, well, all it did was show him these unclean beasts and that that had changed. Now, I get that. And, and we can look at that vision and say, well, you know, what's being taught there is that the food law, the food restrictions were being changed. That's not the point of the vision. That's a microcosm of what he's trying to teach you. Say, what in the world is a microcosm? Okay, let's say you pull up in your car and I say, nice wheels. What do I mean by that? Well, I might be admiring your wheels. Or I might be saying, nice car, right? I'm saying, nice wheels, and I mean nice car. Well, that's what I mean by microcosm. It, it means that you're using a part to represent the whole. And that's what the vision is doing. Using a part of the law of Moses to represent the whole of the law of Moses. I might say, did you get a head count? Well, I don't mean did you count how many heads are here. That's obviously a microcosm. It's the same deal. So God is showing him the doing away of this in this vision, but it's being revealed to them a little bit at a time. Verse 36. So we're going to get into the actual words whereby he would be saved as we close out our sermon tonight. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now listen to verse 37. This is really interesting. That word, you know. Huh? That's right. That word, you know. Which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Why does he say that word, you know? Well, let's remember, where are they at? Caesarea. Where's that at? Right between Galilee and Judea. 
You, you, you honestly think that in Caesarea they didn't know anything about Jesus. Didn't hear about what was happening with this Jesus guy who's out healing everybody. Well, I'll tell you who else was in Caesarea this whole time and has been there for some time is Philip the Evangelist. Philip in verse uh, 40 of chapter 8 says, But Philip found himself as Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, it's not saying he, did, he quit preaching the gospel when he got to Caesarea. It means he quit going through the towns when he got to Caesarea. When he got to Caesarea, you know what he did? He stayed there. You say, well, how do you know that? Acts 21. On the next day when we, depart, we departed, and Luke's talking about Paul's companions and himself, Luke, and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stay with him. Now, don't confuse Philip the evangelist with Philip the apostle. Different people. But this Philip here is the same Philip here, one of the seven. Now, what, what, what is my point with showing you Acts 21 and Acts 8? Because when Philip got to Caesarea, he quit being a traveling preacher, and he stayed there in Caesarea for who knows how long time has passed here, and he's got a house in Caesarea, and he's an evangelist. What's my point? The gospel is spreading in Caesarea before Cornelius is converted. But you know what wasn't happening? The Gentiles were not getting the gospel preached to them because the door was not open. It wasn't open. So question, why doesn't Philip just go preach to Cornelius? And that seems very logical geographically. I mean, he's an effective preacher. Why not just send him to do it? Why not Paul go preach to Cornelius? I mean, he is, after all, the, the minister to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles. And I'll tell you, there's a reason why neither one of these men were called to go preach to Cornelius and why Peter did instead. And we're going to see that in Acts, in, uh, Acts, in Matthew 16, which Brother John read for us. Sunday morning. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I will also, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of Hades, and that word Hades just means realm of the dead or grave, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, first off, who is Jesus talking to here? Peter. You are Peter. And when he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, who's he talking to? Peter. And then he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's really think about what Jesus is saying to Peter. What is keys? What do you do with keys? We unlock something, right? I mean, we use it to start a car. They didn't have cars. What do you do with a key? You're going to unlock a door. Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, the church. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a common phraseology that's used. And in fact, it's not just used in this context. It's used in other contexts. But specifically, what's he talking about here? Binding and loosing. Okay, binding. Binding would be prohibiting. And loosing would be permitting. And what's being prohibited here? Or what's being permitted? Well, in this case, Peter alone is the instrument that would open the door to the kingdom. And when I say instrument, I mean the means by which God would open the door to the kingdom. Peter alone is that. That is not Philip's lot. It's not his responsibility. It's not Paul's responsibility. It's not John's. It's not James. It's not Andrew. It's none of theirs. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter, and he opened the door in Acts 2, and he's opening it again to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 
10. And that's why Peter is the one doing that. In fact, Peter even refers to this in Acts 15. When, when they're having that discussion about the Jew and Gentile and the law of Moses and circumcision and all those problems, Peter says, And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, I don't know what that means either, time-wise, a good while ago, we say that, God chose among us that by my mouth, Notice this, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He said, God anointed or he appointed or he chose me to do that, to open the door of the Gentiles. And even though Paul is called the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter was given the keys and so Peter would open that door. And what is that key? It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the key that opened the door. So here's the message. These are the words that Cornelius and all of them needed. Peter says, we're witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Peter said, we not only witnessed Jesus being resurrected, we sat down at the table and we had a meal with him. We saw it. And not everybody saw that, but he said there were some chosen by God to witness it. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that as he, that's Jesus, who was ordained or appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. We're going to come back through all this at the very end and wrap all this together. I know we're going through this part quickly. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell, on, uh, fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles also. They were astonished. They were astonished. Why? Because all of a sudden, these men began to speak with tongues and magnify God. And why'd that happen? Why'd that happen? I want you to look at verse 47. Peter looks. Now, Peter's already convinced, remember? He's already said, I perceive of a truth that God is not partial anymore. But he's got six Jews that he's brought with him from Joppa to Caesarea. And they're there too. And after the Spirit falls on these Gentiles, then Peter says to them, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we? Now, let's put that in terms we're accustomed to. You're at a wedding and the preacher says, If there's anyone who has reason why these should not be wed, let him speak now or forever hold your peace. That's essentially what he's saying. Not to do with marriage, but... Okay, any of you going to forbid water that we baptize these guys? You know what they did? Nothing. <laughs> you know why? Because God has just approved them. That's the point of him pouring the Spirit out on these Gentiles to prove to not only Peter, but the rest of them and all the Jews after that, that God has opened the door. He's opened the door. And so he commands them, verse 48, to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Okay. So again, he was told that Peter would come and tell him words. Bear, where, oh, getting tongue-tied again. He will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. What were those words? Number one, he starts out by saying Jesus is Lord of all. That's what he started out with. And then he said, secondly, he said God anointed Jesus Christ by giving him the Holy Spirit and performing the healing and miracles. He is the anointed, the Christ. Number three, he says they took him and they hung him to a tree. Number four, he said he was resurrected. And we saw it, we witnessed it. Not only did we witness it, but we sat down and we ate and we drank with him. Number five, he is appointed to judge living and dead. 
He's above all. Number six, through his name, whoever believes in his name will receive remission of sins. Now that's a big thing right there. Whoever, that word whoever matters here. Whoever believes in him, not just the Jew, every nation, any person can receive remission of sins. And finally, he commanded them to be baptized in Jesus' name. Now, I want to recall something. He said, we're here to hear from you of what God has commanded us. You know, there was only one thing in this entire speech that Peter commanded them to do. Just one. And it was to be baptized in the name of Jesus. What kind of baptism was it? Was it Holy Spirit baptism? No, they already had that. They already had that. What did he say? Who can forbid water? Who can forbid water that these should not be baptized? Who have received the Holy Ghost just as we. He commanded them to be baptized in Jesus' name. You know what? This is the exact same way that Peter opened the door in Acts chapter 2. We're not going to go through Acts chapter 2. Don't get worried. We're not going through that. I just want you to see that it's exactly the same way. The way the door was opened to the Gentiles was the same way it was opened to the Jews. Now, there was more prophecy added. There were other things. You know why? Because these people don't know the prophecies. They don't know the prophecies. They're not looking forward to all the things that they were looking forward to in Acts chapter 2. So the message was, was adapted to them, but it was the same message. It was the same message that in the name of Jesus Christ is salvation. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That is, to be saved. These are the words that he needed so he could be saved. And I'll tell you, it was just the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That's all it was. It just been delayed until the appropriate time when God saw fit to open the door of salvation to all the world. And I'll tell you, every one of us sitting here today are beneficiaries of that door being open. And what did it start with? A Roman centurion. And that's pretty amazing. God made it very simple. Whoever believes on him, through his name, can have remission of sins. And tonight it's very simple for you. If you are not forgiven, you need to be forgiven. Cornelius was a good man, but he wasn't perfect. He needed a redeemer just like we do. And if you don't have a redeemer, you need a redeemer tonight. And you've heard the words. This is the gospel message. It is the message of salvation to everyone that believes. And if you're here tonight and you wish to obey the gospel of Christ, we ask you to come and have a seat as we stand and we sing the song that's been selected.